something to sanctify us and grow us as we long to gather again. So God, would you, would you heal our land, heal our hearts. Lord, uh, help us to be still and know that you are God. That there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God and, and you are in the midst of her and, and you shall not be moved. So let us as your people continue to worship you in this unconventional way. Would you take us to our knees to, to beg you that this virus, these circumstances all around us would draw people to Christ. Lord, this, this nation is divided in turmoil. The in, injustices that are going on all over this nation, Father, and the answer is you. So may Christ be high and lifted up in our times, and may we, the church, lift him up as the answer. As we seek justice and do good for our society. Lord, thank you for my brother Richard. He's put many hours this week into what he's about to say. Uh, but he needs your power right now. So would you speak through him? Use the words that you gave him to penetrate our hearts so that we might look more like Christ because of what we heard this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. I want you to picture yourself this morning on the front porch of a mountain house, maybe several hundred yards off of the highway that comes in front of it, and you're there with maybe a family member or a friend. 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and you hear an 18-wheeler making its way miles down the road closer and closer to your house passes by in front, and then begins to make the final five-mile journey up a 7% incline. And the more he goes, shifting gears from 12 to 11 to 10, you look at your friend as the truck goes up the hill and says, listen to him shifting gears. <laughs> this is the tone of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he's shifting gears. For three chapters, he's poured out his heart. High and lofty thoughts about the decisions God made about your life before he even created the world. Then he began to talk honestly about the sin that pulls at you, sustains you takes the spiritual life out of you, separates you from God, and then he talks about the blood and mercy of Christ that cleanses you and enables you to have a seat at the banquet table of God in all of eternity. So those are the first three chapters of Ephesians. High, high thoughts. And then he shifts gears and says... <laughs> We're now moving from doxology to duty, from belief to behavior, from the streets of heaven to the streets of Atlanta, to the streets of Paris, the streets of London, New York, Shanghai, Seattle, Istanbul, Chicago, and even Spartanburg, that this is what life is supposed to look like for those whose places are in heaven. So as you come to Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, which is the latter half of the book, you really get a picture of what the church is supposed to look like on earth in order to fulfill its mission. Paul writes, <clears throat> as he's shifting gears, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A lot of commands in Ephesians chapter 4, but all of them hinge on the most foundational command. Paul says, live a life worthy of your calling. What is your calling? If you don't know that, you're probably not going to live worthy of it. (laughs) When you see the word calling in the Bible, you really need to think more of, I have been called out. My calling is I'm part of the called out ones. You remember in John chapter 11, Jesus hears word that his friend Lazarus died, goes to a small village called Bethany. Four days the man is dead in the tomb. Jesus walks to the rock that had been rolled in front of that grave. And the Bible says in John eleven forty three, 43, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man came out from death to life. That's what it means to be called in Ephesians 4. Basing all that on Ephesians 1 through 3, I have been called from death to life. I was the turrets, the wrath of God were focused on me, and by the blood of Christ now, the salvation of God is upon me. I've been called from death to life. And so then Paul says, in light of that being called out, live worthy of that. Live like it matters that you've been called out. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The word worthy, what do you mean to live worthy of the gospel? The word worthy comes from a Greek word, axios, which means weight. You can imagine in this verse, try to picture yourself standing before scales, which most of us don't use anymore. One side you have one weight, another side a weight. And on this side of the weight of scales, of the Bible scales, you have all that God has done for you. Ephesians 1 through 3. Weighty, isn't it? <laughs> it's way, like, it really takes away. Like, that's a lot of weight. Uh, the weight of its love. High, long, wide, deep love. Go, wait. Over here, the other weight is you living in complete gratitude for what he's done. And they're supposed to equal out <laughs> what he's done for you. How you respond to him. That's what it means to live worthy. You live in gratitude proportionate to what you're grateful for from the Lord. And what he's calling us to do is to do that even when you say, I can't do it. I'm going to live in gratitude to God Even when everything within you says, my circumstances right now say, I can't do it. Why did Paul begin Ephesians 4.1, the second time he's done it in two chapters, telling us he's a prisoner? It's sort of an odd way to begin this unity section. As a prisoner of the Lord, I'm going to write about unity. Because he knows us. We look at the, the prisons of our life. And I don't know what prison you're in right now, but what hardship God called you to this week, today, this hour. But I bet when you looked at it, there was one time this week when you said, I can't do that. That's why Paul says, you can do this. Because I'm doing it. And I'm sitting in a Roman prison cell waiting for a beheading chained to a Roman guard And I'm honoring the Lord in this prison. You can do this. What I'm about to call you to do, this is a message to the church right now. 
Whatever we are facing, being called to, in this country, in this world, he's saying, by the power of God, through the blood of Christ, through the control, enablement of the Holy Spirit, you can do this. Don't say you can't because Paul says, I'm proving I can do that. So then he moves into what he's calling us to do. This hard thing that you say you can't do. He specifically tells the church what hard thing they are about to be called to do. Here it is. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he knows it's hard. That's why he says, make every effort. Because our unity in the church is always going to be in jeopardy. That's why he says, make every effort. Forces are at work always to disintegrate our unity. Now, when he says the bond of peace, you need to be thinking belt. A belt gathers everything, brings it together, and everything is held together within the scope of that belt. So here, the belt that binds us together is the unifying work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood, buried, rose again, that he might give the Spirit to bring us together as a belt. And everybody has a little hole in the belt for everybody. Everybody has a place. Everybody who believes in Christ, loves his blood, born again by the Spirit, there's a place in the belt, and everybody who is born again, Jesus-loving, is tied together, bound together by the Holy Spirit who is unifying us with a supernatural peace. There's a bunch of people right now in downtown Seattle. They've taken over eight city blocks <clears throat> that um, there it's called, they name themselves the Autonomous Zone. And right now, they think they have discovered a unified utopia. <clears throat> I can assure you, those people will not be living together a year from now. Because <laughs> they don't have the power to do it. But there are churches in Seattle that have been in existence 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. They've been doing that, and they're just as diverse as the people in the autonomous zone, but they've been living together for five decades because they're bound together by a supernatural belt of peace that is the Holy Spirit, blood-bought and heaven-sent. You need to understand when you talk about unity, we want unity, a lot of talk right now about unity. This is unity that is promised, guaranteed, made possible, and only exists in this type in the church. If you are looking for something that's going to perfectly unify you to this world, you don't understand the gospel. This is why Jesus is so precious to us. He's taken all of our hostility that would normally be within our hearts, one toward another, and replaced it with love supernaturally by his peace and brought us together, bound us together with a belt of heavenly love, power, and mercy, the Holy Spirit, and brings us together this Unity only exists in the church. So, as we protect our unity, which is crucial, protect the unity of the church. As we protect the unity of the church, we don't let the world 
which is by nature hostile to God, not committed to God's glory, not committed to his character. We don't let the world dictate how the church should be thinking about unity. The church should care more than anyone about racial unity and justice in all the nations because we know of a Savior who shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins for all the nations to reconcile all nations to God and to reconcile people to one another through the belt of the unity of the Holy Spirit's peace. We know that. So we should be more committed to unity than anyone. But when it comes to what unity looks like, we don't look to worldly voices, worldly entertainers, worldly business people, worldly educators, worldly politicians, worldly athletes, and say, hey, famous person, you who neither worship God nor esteem his words, would you in the world tell me in the church what unity is supposed to look like? I feel sorry for some of you who do nothing but stay on social media and watch television to seek wisdom regarding unity. I feel sorry for you. It causes you to feel as if everything the world is saying is right, no matter how extreme, and everything that you believe is wrong, no matter how biblical. Here's a piece of advice. If you want to feel hopeless, keep listening to the news and reading social media. If you want to know what hope can be and how it's possible, open the Bible and draw near to God. The role of the media should be information. But oftentimes, the result of the media is division. Is that intentional? That is not for me to say. Is it a reality? Yes. So when the Lord's people inundate themselves and inform themselves from more sources outside the Bible than inside the Bible, the division of the world will suddenly become the division of the church. Dr. Vody Bauckham is the Dean of Theology of the African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia. Speaks all over the place, conferences, college campuses, pastored for a number of years at Grace Family Bible Church in Texas. And he's concerned more than ever, just listen to him speak for an hour and a few minutes on racial justice. He's concerned more than ever that the church has lost its bearing on where unity is to be found, how unity is to be found. So he says, the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. And how we deal with each other across ethnicities is a matter of faith and practice. The Bible is sufficient for that. But now we've got sociology overriding and governing our theology, and that is hugely problematic. So he's right. We have a crisis of belief now in the church of what is the answer for unity, and some are disregarding the sufficiency of Scripture and the voice of God that he and it the Bible is not enough. And I submit to you today, I came to church to say this, no matter what turmoil is occurring in the world, the Scripture is sufficient to guide the church to know the will of God, 
to complete the mission of God with the joy of God for the glory of God. The scripture is sufficient. That's why when COVID broke out, what did I do? Like, I'm not a medical expert. I just teach Psalm 46. Two weeks. Just taught the Bible. That's why a few weeks ago when the country began unraveling through the lawless killing of George Floyd, followed by the lawless destruction of riotous people, I sought to ground your hope in the Word of God. I was preaching through the book of Ephesians. I thought, let's just stay in Ephesians. Why would I do that? Because I think the Bible is sufficient. In all things, at all times, for all people. I did that personally because I believe it, but also because of my preaching professor who 34 years ago told our class, devote yourself to the systematic teaching of the Bible and you'll be amazed at how the passages that you are studying will prepare you to speak to the trials your people are facing. I've been doing that for 34 years. What would you say today if you were in my place? Knowing it goes out to the whole world, what would you say? I'm going to say Bible. The Bible is an amazing thing. My preaching professor, he's 76 years old. He has a Ph.D. in the homiletics in Greek. If you listen to him preach, you couldn't understand half of what he says. His vocabulary is so lofty. We used to always laugh at his use of polysyllabic language. That's exactly the type of words he uses. But study his schedule. 70% of his itinerant ministry is in black churches. Beyond that, he devotes preaching seminars to black pastors. And I wrote him this week and just said once again, thank you. Thank you for helping all of us through biblical teaching know that God's word is sufficient. So that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 3, telling us there's a blood-bought, spirit-animated peace that surrounds the church, fills the church, binds the church together. And we are to keep that unity at all cost. We don't make it. Don't hear him saying that. We don't make the unity. Don't produce unity. That was produced at something called Calvary. We were at war with God, war with one another. And the... High, low, wide love of Christ brought us all together through the shedding of his blood and the raising of his life from the tomb, victory over death. So we don't make unity. We keep it. Here's how we keep it. Then Paul tells us, this is how you keep unity. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That is the only way that unity comes in the world. Humility, very interesting word. Be completely humble. Interesting, I talked about my preaching professor using big words. How about the Apostle Paul? Tepai nephrosene. That's humble in Greek. Tepai nephrosene. You say, well, why in the world would he make such a big word? Because in the first century, there was no word for humility. <laughs> it was not a virtue in the Roman world. They didn't have a word for it. They mocked it. Because that word means 
Do not think that you are more significant than others. <laughs> that was laughable in the first century. Of course I'm more significant than everyone. People would never consider someone else's needs as more important than theirs. But you know who did do that? There is one man in history who said, your needs are more important than mine. I know you know already where I'm going, and I hope you've so not outguessed me that you would be bored with this glorious passage, the best in the Bible and all of history and all of literature on humility. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, thinking you're more significant than others. Rather in what? Oh, there it is. Humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's the command. Here's the example. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being God, did not consider that godness something I should hold on to. To be used to his own advantage. Rather he made himself. Let go of it. Made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man. Now this is God. Now man. That's a pretty big descent. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. In order to bring people Together, Jesus Christ had to let go of his rights to exalt himself. This is what the flesh wants to do 24-7. I have a right to exalt myself, therefore I will exalt myself. That is anti-gospel. <laughs> That's Antichrist. In the past 10 days, I have witnessed, by way of a news report, a beautiful act of humility that is not surprising, probably unknown to you, not as stirring as the other reports. I'll repaint the scenario one more time so you can grasp the significance of this act of humility. So, just one more time, just in case you live in another universe. I'll tell you about what's going on in this universe. George Floyd was murdered by the police in Minneapolis. It was an act of lawlessness by a depraved heart. In response to that act of lawlessness, thousands of people begin protesting against lawlessness by engaging in lawlessness. So now, all across the world, you have people who are angry at the police for allowing one of their own to commit murder. And then you have another group of people who are angry at a mob who were allowed to burn, loot, steal, and also kill. The only point I'm making is you got a bunch of angry people in the world right now. What are you going to do with that? Well, somebody's got to step up and be humble or the anger is going to intensify. Who stepped up? Antonio Gwynn stepped up. When the news of the horror of George Floyd's murder occurred, he went out like you would expect, exercised his, his right constitutionally and certainly biblically to say this is wrong. So he went out and protested in the streets of Buffalo, went home, went to bed. What he didn't know is after he went to bed, the streets of Buffalo turned into anarchy and Buildings were burned, looted. 
When he woke up, he found out that much of the damage that had been done was done on a street called Bailey Street, which was special to him because it's primarily, it was the home of a church where he grew up. His mother had died a couple years earlier. His father was nowhere in his life, never had been. The church took him in. A pastor took him in. Forgot to put the pastor's picture on here. The pastor's name is Dwayne Thomas. So, Antonio Gwynn said, I want to go clean up this area of Buffalo that was so dear to me. So, he got a U-Haul truck that he'd been using for a recent move and a broom and a dustpan and a large box of garbage bags and for the next 10 hours cleaned up his city. You heard about Antonio Gwynn? I guess you haven't. Have you? Because that's healing. That's how healing happens. Antonio Gwynn had the right to stay home and say, I did not do this. This is right. He had the right to stay home and say, I'm, ta- I'm tired from sorrow. I am angry at injustice. But he laid down that right for the good of others, of business people that he loved that were on either side of the church that had taken him in. What a picture. You want to see a picture in the past two weeks of Jesus Christ? You look at Antonio Gwynn. And what I really love about it is God, by his grace, happened to finish the story of Christ's likeness for us. You know how Philippians 2 ends? About Jesus, the Christ. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus gave away his rights, crucified, mocked, shamed, lost it all. And God gave him the name to which every people will. Every nation, all world, all powers will one day bow. Just so that we might see this reality through metaphor, he decided to do that through Antonio Gwynn. When community leaders found out when Antonio Gwynn, they showed him unbelievable admiration and engaged with a partnership with him. Matt Block Gave him a red Mustang that he had loved for years because he didn't have an automobile. Bob Bryslin, local insurance agent, provided free car insurance for a year. And Medell College in Buffalo gave him a four-year scholarship so he could study business because he wants to open up a cleaning business. Did you hear about this on the news doubt it. There are many things in life that we can and should legislate. But the greater advancement in society is when the Lord produces this kind of humility in all of our hearts. That can't be legislated. The greatest battle in America right now is still in the human heart. Without humility, there will never be any unity. And the only way that we'll ever become humble is to fixate our attention on the ultimate example and enabler of unity, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me end today with just a few comments about how Paul ends verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. For the sake of time, I'll just quickly say, gentle, another word for meek. Uh, It was used in the 
all over the scripture to describe power under control. Not power out of control, power under control. A picture of a horse. Oftentimes in secular literature would be described as meek. Power under control. So, you got a bunch of powerful people in the world right now. And this is what God's calling on. Smart people, talented people, strong people. Use all of your smarts, all of your position, but keep all of your power under control because when you stay calm, everybody stays calm. That's the benefit of meekness. Patience. Be humble, gentle, or meek, and be patient. means to be long-suffering. It means to have really... Practically speaking, to stay involved in a relationship for a long time. Not a quick fix to the mess we're in. So be committed, not just to, as we're going to see in a minute, love, but loving over a long time. Be gentle for a long time. Be meek for a long time. Be humble for a long time. That's what it means to be patient. And then, bearing with one another in love. <laughs> what does that mean? He didn't just say be loving. Bear with one another. It's an interesting phrase. It means, basically, to accept each other as flawed people. To know that when we get involved in these long-term relationships... We are going to say things that aren't right, but accept one another in the working out of getting it right. Accept one another as flaws, but, you know, the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. That's all in this picture right here. So you see a bunch of, you know, all the relationships you have in life in your community, and that you say, this was wrong, this is wrong. Let love cover instead of focusing on flaw, 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 and say, I'm going to, that was wrong, it was flaw, but I'm about to cover you in love. You can really see this in the, in, in the book of Genesis when the Bible says that God destroyed the world with the flood and he said, I'm going to save some people out of the flood. And so he saved a family, the family of Noah. Noah built an ark. The rain came down. Noah's family stayed in the ark for 150 days. Beautiful, unbelievable uh, act of faith. It took him 120 years to build it. And you look and say, that man is flawless. And I, I look at, that's just flawless faith. But the Bible says that after he finished the ark and the rain came and the boat settled down on dry land again, that somehow Noah let his guard down and he got drunk and took off all of his clothes and was laying on the ground and one of his sons came and found him and got his other family members and came and laughed at him and said, look at dad. Then another family, another son came and said, no, I'm going to cover my father's mistakes with a with bedding, with a, with, a, with a robe. That's what it means to bear with one another. I'm, I'm not going to continue to live my life focusing on how wrong you are. I'm going to continually look at those wrongs, admit those wrongs, but my relationship with you, I'm going to continue to respond by not, not highlighting and highlighting and highlighting your wrongs, I'm going to cover you in love. This past week, I watched the funeral of George Floyd. It took place in the Fountain of Praise Church in Houston, Texas. Predominantly black congregation. And 
<clears throat> there was one point in the service where I was just stunned. I had seen, I'd listened to s- several black leaders speak, and then they invited a white pastor to speak. His, his name is uh, Steve Wells. He's the pastor of South Main Baptist Church. And, you know, I think to myself as a pastor, in every circumstance, what would I say? What would I say to that family? What would I say to that community? What would I say to that church? I'm pretty intrigued here. And I thought his words were so healing and so helpful. He talked about love. That's what he said. Everyone here would have understood if you would have said, we don't need to hear from white people today. I love that. It's true. But you ask the whole community to come together. You have chosen the path of perfect love that casts out fear. That is not only the path to your healing, but to the healing of the whole world. It is the path of partnering with God in redeeming the world. It is a difficult path. I don't know if there's a better definition of love than found in Romans 12. We're to mourn with those who mourn. We're to weep with those who weep. You know what you can give somebody any time of the day? You can listen and you can lament. That's often what love looks like, listening and lamenting. Husbands are notorious for fixing their wives, trying to fix their wives when they're just gutting out how bad their day was. Every time she'll say, I didn't want you to fix, because you can't. I just want you to be sympathetic. I saw a t-shirt yesterday that I liked. Uh, That's the phrase I used a minute ago. That's what love often looks like, listening and lamenting. Saw a t-shirt yesterday. I saw that. Listen, lament, lament, legislate. Love that. Hope we do that. God's honored. Society has helped. May that happen. But we'll never eliminate every injustice in the world. Because you just can't legislate love. Aim, lament every injustice, aim for the removal as much as possible. But Paul tells us later, we'll see this in another week. The only thing that you know in life is hope about what's coming and who's coming. Jesus. But if you want to lament a little bit today, you want to know a little bit, you want to listen and lament. I mean, there are people that we need to pray for, vote for, they're going to legislate. There are politicians. Hope they do right. Pray for them to do right. Vote for them to do right. But if you, that's their job. I can't do much about that. What I can do is listen and lament. You want to lament a little bit? You could go to June 6, 2020, the Gospel Coalition, and listen to a current Christian hip-hop artist, Shailen, talk about the struggles he's faced as a black man in America. It's so helpful for you to listen and lament. I know I'm a little long today. I think it's worth it. June 20th, next Saturday, 7 o'clock at night, Gospel Coalition, having a time of prayer called a night of lament for racial justice. I am hoping it will be a time of unifying prayer among the church.
I'll be there listening. I hope you will as well. But let me say this. If during the evening someone out of passion, not wisdom, says something that is inaccurate, insensitive, unfair, disparaging, and unfortunately disunifying, then I apologize that the night might not be perfect. But I know this. There is no hope for what's going on in this country and in this world except prayer right now. So, I'm hoping you're praying this afternoon and this week, but there's an opportunity next Saturday night. Let me close with this. I wrote a black pastor um, recently. I'm on the front end of relationship with him. We've got that long way to go that Paul talks about. But I wrote him because I want to always grow in listening and lamenting. This is what I wrote him. Hello, my dear brother. I just want you to know that even though I have not walked where your feet have walked and seen what your eyes have seen, heard what your ears have heard, I greatly value the tears you have shed and the wrongs you have endured. So I stand by your side and look at the Lord's beautiful face for true hope. May God so strengthen our souls and anoint our minds that our voices break demonic strongholds and lead many people to the foot of the cross, the throne of God, and to the everlasting satisfaction of Jesus. So I wrote half of it sympathy, the rest challenge. Because I am called to stand by his side and I am called, as I would with all pastors, to remind him and to remind myself there is only one sure thing in this world for hope of unity. And that is within a blood-bought spirit enlivened church. I was speaking this past week to the director of Sidewalk Hope. And we were both talking about how both of us are pressured by different voices. Make a statement. Say something. Make a statement. And, um, and I love what she said. She said to me, this is my statement. I was all ears. She sent me three pictures. When I saw those pictures, I said to her, These are my words, not hers. I'm not on the board of that ministry. I've not been asked to speak for that ministry. These are my words. I said to her, the next time you're asked for a statement, maybe you should just say what you have been doing for many years. We're grateful to the communities we serve for allowing us the privilege of teaching the love and hope of Jesus to your precious children. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If anybody wants to know what we think as a church about what is going on in the world today, do we believe that racial injustice is wrong? Do we believe that racial harmony is possible? Is unity possible anywhere anymore? This is our statement.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, from whom all goodness flows, from whom all life is created, and from where all answers are derived, you are the source of wisdom. You are the wellspring of love. We praise you, O God and Creator, that you are more than Creator and Sustainer. You are the Savior of a broken world. You so loved the world, Jesus, that you gave away your rights to simply come and love people and cover over their sins with your blood and with your grace, with your kindness, with your forgiveness. May we do all that is within our power as we look at you and love you and thank you may we live worthy of your sacrifice by duplicating (laughs) that type of love to those who have no hope to those who live on the end of the road, unsafe, forgotten. Crushed by anger, addiction, injustice, racism, hate, May we have the privilege, may we have the privilege of taking the hope and peace of Jesus Christ to them. In his name I pray, amen.